the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. It's going to be a good day because you found the brand new episode of Capital Ideas and what an episode it is. I'll tell you just what's so special about it in just a minute, but first, here's the fine print. We call this Capital Ideas because it's the podcast in which members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about, yes, ideas. Ideas like racial equity, clean air and water, accessible, affordable health care, lifelong learning, prosperity for families and businesses, tax fairness, you know, good ideas. The kind Washington House Democrats proudly fight for year in and year out. Now, as for today, listeners with long memories might recall that back in the infancy of podcasting in 2009, the third episode of Capital Ideas featured Representative Tim Ormsby of Spokane and Legislative Assistant Shannon Wechter talking about how legislators' offices work in Olympia, the roles of the lawmaker and the L.A., the dynamics, and how they structure their professional relationship to best accomplish the work that constituents expect and deserve. That episode, number 903, is still available, and it's good listening. Today, 13 years later, we circle back for another conversation with Tim and Shannon to see what's changed and what hasn't now that Tim is a 20-year veteran of the House who chairs the budget-writing House Appropriations Committee. We'll also talk about the budgeting process, the budget itself, partisanship and bipartisanship, and how, with Shannon's help, Tim puts his philosophy of leadership into practice while doing one of the Capitol's toughest and most coveted jobs. We talked on the Zoom Wednesday, March 30th, 2022, and this is how it went. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Tim Ormsby and Legislative Assistant Shannon Wechter from the 3rd Legislative District out in Spokane. It's great to have you both here on Capital Ideas. Thank you for having us, Dan. Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure, and I, I guess you probably remember that about 13 years ago, you two were in the third ever episode of Capital Ideas back in 2009. And at the time, the topic we talked about was running a legislative office. It's still one of the best podcasts that we've ever done, as far as I'm oh, concerned. Nice. And one of the other best podcasts that we've ever done was, Tim, the last time I interviewed you. I'm really proud of that podcast because it was so instructional on how a state operating budget comes to be. I don't want to just do that same podcast again today. So I want to approach it from a little different angle today and bring Shannon into it and talk again about running a legislative office. But also, I want to ask you some questions about the budget process and about some specific programs. Okay. It's been 13 years since we talked about running a legislative office, and both of you have 13 years more experience now. And I'm wondering how things have evolved over the past decade in how you work together. We were always very comfortable working with each other and wouldn't have thought at the time it would get more comfortable. A lot of 
our communication doesn't necessarily have to be this, the, uh, you know, a formal thing. We're, we're anticipating what each other's uh, needs are and what, what is the most relevant information we can exchange that makes it easier for the other, other to do their job. And I would have to say the biggest changes have come about from Tim's increasing responsibilities as he's gone from vice chair of capital budget at the time that we taped that first podcast to chair of the House Appropriations Committee. There's just a lot more to keep track of. Uh, there's just a lot more you know, communication that needs to go on uh, just to keep things running smoothly. That's not surprising given what I know about the evolution of the Appropriations Committee under Tim's leadership. Because, And that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you specifically, Tim, is how have you finessed what goes on in terms of leadership of that committee? You've expanded it during your tenure as chair to where you have three or four vice chairs who each handle specific areas. It came about naturally. So it wasn't some uh, have a plan, going to enact this plan. We have an embarrassment of riches in terms of our staff, our communications policy and budget staff within our caucus and policy and budget staff and the Office of Program Research. We have a lot of talent with our members, their life experience, professional, personal things that they have focused on, not just in the legislature, but in their personal lives and trying to marshal as much as we could, especially during the pandemic, which really was a game changer to really draw on all of those talents and to throw out the playbook of a certain committee structure that only works you know, you have a chair and a vice chair and it's written and reads rules of order. And that's how you have to go about it. It's like, we've got a lot of work to do and there's a lot of need out in the state. We should have as many people involved in decision-making so that we're getting enough of the input from the members of the legislature about a budget that they would like to go home and talk to their constituents about. I want to veer off a little bit. You just mentioned the word pandemic, and that reminds me that one of the questions I wanted to ask, and we may as well talk about it right now, you and your colleagues have written a budget in normal times. You've now done an operating budget and a supplemental operating budget under pandemic terms, meaning people are scattered hither and yon. What's the difference in terms of how things have worked? Has it been more difficult? Has it made no difference whatsoever? Has it been easier because you didn't have to put up with people getting in your face? That is such a good question about the differences between the pre-pandemic and now, because now the pandemic is kind of normalized, and I don't necessarily so much recall the, uh, remember when reminiscing was like two decades ago, and now it's like two years ago, the good old days? I was fine in both environments, but again, that's a credit to the staff and the ability of the staff to adapt to the new circumstances. And uh, members' responsibility was to follow instructions, which we can sometimes have trouble doing, but a system was set up, a very good system with a lot of the troubleshooting and imagining all of the problems we were gonna encounter 
being asked early and being addressed through technology. Now, I prefer the in-person now that just upon reflecting, since you asked the question, I prefer it because it's, it's efficient in a way that involves other people. The electronic version of building the budget had its own efficiencies about real-time communication instead of waiting for someone. We relied a lot more on technology. I got a lot more questions answered when we were in person and I could run to the other end of the third floor to ask you something, or I could run down to the second floor where our nonpartisan offices are and ask the folks at Office of Program Research about this or that. Now I have to be so much more intentional and actually make appointments and do things less spontaneously, but it has its efficiencies. I guess I just prefer being around uh, the people because that is a very meaningful part of the job. So easier or harder, both had its advantages, both ways had advantages and disadvantages, but my preference is in person because it's a people business and seeing them in person reminds you of that. In addition to writing a budget in a pandemic versus a normal year, you've also come up with budgets in what I would simplistically call good years and bad years. How would you compare the two? Just going back a few years to when there was a a challenge or two economically in the state to this year when that problem was not present. I have asked similar questions of longtime staffers folks that have been around state government for a good bit of time about lean times and when we're flush. And, uh, you know, some really knowledgeable people with a lot of cycles of good times and bad times under their belt in terms of budgets has said the only thing that compares to not having enough money is having more money than people expected you to have. The sweet spot you're always trying to hit regardless is the best, most just highest use of the resources that we have. That is always your goal. And if the, if you keep it just as basic as that, the decision-making process is more straightforward, more cut and dry, uh, because it's all relative to the circumstances that you find yourself in. It is way better to have enough available resources to exceed people's expectations And that can happen both in good years and in bad years. And one of the challenges for being flush with money is people's expectations increase proportionally. You can have a lot more disappointment when you're awash in resources than if you weren't because people's expectations are higher. I think that's why keeping it to the most fair, most just, highest and best use is the best way to go about it, regardless of the economic circumstances. Then you're able to look people in the eye and say that you did the best you could with what we had available. I want to bring Shannon into this now. Shannon, the last time we did a podcast together, the team consisted of Tim and you. Now that he is a committee chair, not just a committee chair, but the chair of appropriations, uh, you have an assistant, legislative assistant, at least during the sessions. And and that's because your workload has increased exponentially, I suspect. How is it now working with a larger team? And to make this a two-part question, 
How do you deal with the millions of people that want Tim's attention because they want to be able to slip two or three dollars into the budget? You know, interims continue to be the same. It's just Tim and I. I think people sometimes think that there is this giant team that follows you throughout the year. Uh, that isn't the case. Uh, outside of session, it's always been just Tim and I. And then when session comes along, Tim has created a very collaborative approach to the budget. Because of that, our team needs to kind of seamlessly integrate and we need to find our divisions of labor. And most recently, while he's been committee chair, I have taken on the responsibility of tracking the budget member requests, the stakeholder requests, agency requests, those requests are all recorded for the budget team to be able to take a look at and make decisions about. And so while I'm doing that, I have a session aide who literally has become the legislative assistant who does Tim's scheduling and his day-to-day things that ordinarily legislative assistants take care of. And Tim His policy is that he will meet with whoever asks if he can do it. That is our office goal. And so as we're muddling through, we do our best to accommodate the people that ask. We make sure that the most important information, which is what it is they need Tim to know, even if they can't get 15 minutes with him, is reflected in that budget tracker so that when the team is ready to go through that list and make those decisions, they have all that information. Electronic session, remote session has been so much easier in some ways. I don't have to body block people in front of Tim as we he walks to committee just because we know he's going to be swarmed by and be late, right? Can't have that. And so, uh, you know, we have more time to consider the requests and set those up in a thoughtful way. And it's not just these big swarms of individuals clamoring for time and attention when Tim doesn't have it. So it's a little different. I don't get to spend as much time with Tim now during session as I do during interim. He's got the session aid that he interacts with about his scheduling and those daily things. Um, so in that way, it's changed a bit, but it's okay. <laughs> and, uh, when session ends successfully, like it does, uh, we're back to a team of two and business goes on as usual. Can I just say, Dan, I mean, the, you know, having grown up in a large family where it was tough to get in a word edgewise. And then, you know, and going to this noisy construction site, workplace, in all of those ways, the the communication was the key to success, both in family life and in my construction, in my concrete work, and also in the legislature. Those are very team sports. Those are not individual events. And one of the things learning kind of a family ethic and then through my construction trades time and into the legislature was everyone deserves the same shot to be heard. Representing a low income, by most measurements, our legislative uh, district is 
you know, among the lowest, if not the lowest, by different measurements of income. And uh, folks uh, can tend to get used to not being heard. And it is such a legitimizing thing. I know I felt it when I was listened to. It's the least we can do for the people that we represent or people that represent interests that could benefit the constituents in the third legislative district or across the state. And if we don't have that information, we can't engage effectively if we're missing out on information. And everyone deserves the same shot at success, whether I agree with them or not. No one should be put at a disadvantage because they don't have access. But it turns out the folks with the least access are uh, the folks with the least means. Talking about people having a legitimate shot at success reminds me of another question that I wanted to talk about, which was to talk about the opposite of success, which is disappointments. As chair of the Appropriations Committee, you have a huge hand in in how the budget turns out. But there are 146 other legislators, including 49 over across the rotunda, who all have their own opinions. Looking at this multi-billion dollar operating budget, what would you classify as a disappointment that you have had to live with and maybe come back and take another shot at fixing it next year? Well, aside from the budget, my big disappointment is not being engaged in the policy work that other committees do as much. So we're in a very expedited role where we go in to our caucus and brief our caucus members on fiscal implications of bills. And then we're out of there and we're off doing our budget work. And you don't get to be involved in that internal dynamic with your fellow caucus members and the classroom atmosphere, the things you learn there. So aside from the budget, my biggest disappointment is not being exposed and as knowledgeable as I'd like to be uh, about the policy work that's going on that we might not see in the Appropriations Committee because it's policy only or it has very minimal costs, but it's very important. In terms of the uh, disappointments regarding the budget, it's all based on a lack of information. When we have made a choice, a policy choice on a budget item that turns out to be not as nuanced, not as informed as it should be, it's because we didn't have the right information. And, and that's on us, that's on me. Uh, but that is one of the reasons we're trying to expand that input that we get from our very knowledgeable members and very capable staff members, both within the House Democratic Caucus and within the Office of Program Research, disappointments all result from a lack of information or a misinterpretation of information on my part. And as humans, you know, we're, we're going to do that. Uh, you try and do it as little as possible because there's a lot at stake when we're trying to implement the state budget. A lot of people's lives depend on it. We need to get it just as right as we possibly can. One area that may have become problematic because of a lack of information being the fact that you can't see into the future is the Washington Cares program, which needed to be tweaked based on the fact that the participation was both more and less than it had been anticipated to be. And I'm just wondering, I, I told you I wasn't going to ask a whole lot about specific 
items, but there's a couple I've got here before me, and that's one of them. I want to get your take on the prospect now of that long-term care program now that you've made some pretty important adjustments. That is a perfect example of the pursuit of the policy. Many other things happened shortly after that bill passed. In 2019, we had a leadership change internally in the legislature. Um, People took on different and other responsibilities, and it languished, frankly, for lack of attention between 2019 and 2021 when it was about to be implemented. I'll take part in my responsibility for my part in that of not focusing on it, thinking that it was an automatic pilot, that it was going to take care of itself. Well, the information wasn't extended out to the public. And as soon as we passed this very innovative program, which I very much support, we did not do the cultivating of the ground and the, you know, getting it ready for planting that we should have because so many other things were going on. It's a lesson that just because something's implementation date is out a couple of years does not mean uh, that you can avoid doing all that necessary work on the front end until it lands in your lap. So lessons learned on that. I think there's plenty of responsibility to go around. I certainly will take responsibility for my part. I can tell you from the state budget standpoint, the thing that is really gonna be a huge liability going into the future for our state is folks you're in my age that are going to need a long-term care plan and they don't have one. I went to a meeting years ago and heard from a long-term care specialist whose last parting words of wisdom at this breakfast was, if you are at or approaching old age and you don't have a daughter, get one uh, because we're relying on our families. We have this, uh, what's it called? Like the sandwich generation, you know, where you have aging parents and you also have children that require care. While many families are perfectly able and capable of doing that, they need professional care when someone is advancing in years. The family needs to function during all of these stages of life that we go through. And it's important that we have resources available as people age so they can do it with dignity and that their family doesn't have to bear the entire burden and responsibility of doing it. The measurement of a great nation like ours and a great state like ours is how well do we take care of people that need our help? And that is by very definition, our elders and those aging and our young folks, that's what we need to take care of. Another program that I want to ask about, and this is not based on problems with it, it's just that it's a high profile program that has been a relatively recent innovation by the House Democrats and the rest of the legislature came along is the paid family and medical leave program. As a head budget writer for the House, how comfortable do you feel about the sustainability and the solvency of the paid family leave program? I feel good about it. Now, that doesn't mean it's without its challenges. And that's why the legislature convenes every year to address those issues, because we've learned in the interim between the time when one legislative session concludes and another one begins, we're doing fact-finding and information gathering throughout that entire time. This is a wildly popular idea because people need time uh, to take care of kids, to take care of their elders, siblings, neighbors, spouses. We all need the freedom to be able to do that 
and not sacrifice our personal relationships at the altar of workplace demands. So it's popular as we're evolving as a society and prioritizing more of those interpersonal relationships and the bonds and value of family. Uh, we have to preserve that. And while it's not without its challenges, its funding challenges, it turns out the paid family and medical leave was prescribed at a level over and above what we expected. So we're glad people are utilizing it. We're glad that they're able to solidify those relationships with their loved ones by uh, taking time off. Uh, but then we we have uh, the problem of making sure there there's enough resources so that promise that we made through that policy gets delivered to everybody that's eligible and in the amount that they have coming. And if we have to make adjustments, again, I'm going to defer back to our very talented and capable staff that can provide us with options that we can act on when we get news. And it ends up being always good news and bad news. To me, it's good news that we have more people accessing the paid family and medical leave. That is good news. It's not so great news that it costs a little bit more. So we're going to have to figure out how to continue fulfilling that promise by assigning the appropriate amount of resources to the program to make sure that our intent was to solidify those family relationships. And that's what it's doing. And we're just going to have to work to figure out. I am comfortable that we will continue to figure out how to fund uh, paid family and medical leave and for it to be the benefit to families we had envisioned it to be. The paid family leave program and the long-term care program, Washington Cares, are examples of a couple of programs that, let's say, they weren't universally embraced by the minority party. That's my lead-in to a question, which is, as the country has become more divided and as bipartisanship has, at least in the other Washington, become a thing of the past, I'm wondering how, in your 20 years here in the legislature, how has this affected your work? Are you seeing a difference? I know that, that the capital budget is universally, you know, slapped on the back as being the most bipartisan thing on earth. The transportation budget used to be that way, and that's changed. And the operating budget has never been that way. But there has been at least a, a semblance of collegial relationships and professional friendships among people on the committee. I'm wondering what you have to say about that now. You know, it's f interesting that you asked the question comparing, you know, from the my beginning time in the legislature to now. I have very much the same feeling for my counterparts across the aisle from the other party, which is they have every right to be here just the same as I do. They got elected. They have a voice. And I come out of labor and one of the strongest held views uh, within the labor community the importance of the voice of the minority. So regardless of who has the majority and has the gavel and controls the agenda, the voice of the minority is always forefront in my mind. I've had the benefit in my 19 legislative sessions to have always served in the majority. But I know from talking to other members, from talking to folks in the other chamber or at a local level where they have been in the minority, we owe it to them to be able to voice their concerns. My interactions 
and professional and personal relationships as a Democrat with the Republicans do not seem to me to have changed. But we do have this national backdrop of vitriol and viciousness and just venomous interactions that are really not my experience. And how much of it is performative on the national level, uh, I can't say because I'm not involved. And I have a deep respect and uh, appreciation for uh, my Republican colleagues for the intellectual and philosophical consistency I've shown them demonstrate. Now, we don't share the same philosophical approach, but I appreciate anybody that is consistent with how they go about business. And uh, regardless of their party affiliation, um, I can appreciate that. And we can factor that in to getting our work done while still accommodating, hearing everyone's voice. And that includes uh, the voice of the minority party, which in, in our case is the Republicans who have really added a certain seasoning to this soup that is the budget that has made it better. Now, would they feel that they had as much influence as they would like? Of course not. I wouldn't uh, feel the same way if I were in the minority party. And even in the majority party, even as chair of the budget committee, it is not a monarchy. It all depends on everybody else going along. It reminds me of a political story I was told long ago that the only difference between leading a parade and being run out of town is the attitude of the people behind you. My goal is to have every member in the legislature say, you know, if, if not for my input, this budget would not have been as helpful as it is. And that's my goal. And I, and I think by reaching out to both our same party colleagues and our different party colleagues, we have a better chance of doing that. I want to ask Shannon a similar question. Shannon, you worked for former Speaker of the House Tom Foley in Washington, D.C., you worked for Senator Patty Murray in Washington State, and you've worked with Tim Ormsby now here for several years. And so you've seen, I suspect, some changes. And I'm wondering, particularly contrasting the situation with Speaker Foley and working today in this arena, how have you seen things change in terms of partisanship and the way partisanship is expressed? I think at the federal level, everything all seems a bit removed. Things move at a slower pace. The federal House, Senate, and White House work all year round with significant breaks at different times, but things move slower. And at the state level, it's very personal, which is the big difference. I have watched Tim over the last 15 years manage to have difficult conversations with constituents, with colleagues, and I'm always truly amazed when folks will walk away from a meeting with Tim saying, I just love him. I haven't yet figured out how he does it. I'm in those meetings. I, I haven't been able to identify that particular way that he manages to accomplish that. But universally, what he says is really who he is and how he approaches conversations. And that's that. He really does honestly want people to feel like they've had the opportunity to say their piece, whether he agrees with them or not. 
And on a personal level, those interactions that for other people might be, because it is so personal, that might be difficult, really aren't as difficult as I anticipated. So from the person that sits in the chair and watches the people file into the office and file out or watches the interactions that he has with people in the wings or on the phone quite often, I think universally people feel very heard. And I think that's much more difficult to do at the federal level. And you have to remember when I was in Foley's office, that was the Newt Gingrich backbencher throwing grenades at the, you know, the Democrats and the entire process, like the entire process was being denigrated. It was being, that was very difficult for people who had spent their entire lives, and that's not just members, but staff, and um, who had spent their entire lives trying to make that process just as civil as they could, considering the level of impact it actually had on people all over the country. I have to say, coming to work at the state, I was just astounded by the resources that we had in the state. And when Tim talks about staff, I have never seen the kind of collaboration that I have seen with the House Democratic Caucus and the the attention to the process that I've enjoyed here. So this is the best job I've ever had. Tim is top 1% boss I've ever had. <laughs> and uh, I just, I just could not be more proud or happier to be where I'm at because uh, Tim is honestly the real deal. He, he, he is a guy that I feel so good about supporting in the things that he says and does because he walks it. He, he believes what he says and he, and he does what he says. So got to say, he's a great guy and I feel very fortunate to be working with him. It's late in the afternoon, and I need to cut you all loose so you can go on about the rest of your day. Tim, I have one last question I want to ask, and that is also about a specific thing, and it, it kind of has to do with partisanship, as a matter of fact. During the debates on the budget, it was referenced many times by members of the minority party that somehow the reserve being left behind in state coffers by this budget was not a responsible number. What I have seen, it seems to be extremely prudent, and I would like to have you explain how two well-meaning people can look at the same numbers and come up with such different explanations. We have a substantial reserve. I think the reserve amounts because they're in different accounts, and then there's the two-year ending fund balance and the four-year because we have this outlook statute that requires us to project well into the future, four years into the future, what our spending plan will cost. I would say at the end of this biennium that we're currently in, that will end June 30th, 2023, we have 9.4%. The following year, uh, the beginning of the next biennium, we have 10.7% reserves. And at the end of the outlook period, going to June 30th, 2026, we have 12.1% reserves. Now, this is all modeling. And as you referenced earlier, Dan, the trouble with predicting the future is that it hasn't happened yet. 
And we are in some uncertain, uncharted territory economically. But what we know is we have to meet the needs of the people. And we also have to put ourselves in a position to continue doing that into the future. And we have healthy reserves. They're distributed throughout the system in a fashion that has landed Washington with the best credit rating of a public entity in the country. And we borrow money cheaply because of our good track record of paying our bills and having reserves in hand to withstand the tumultuous economic times that will always eventually, the cycle will always come down you know, from its high to uh, less good economic times. And our track record over the course of a couple of generations is, strong, is so strong that those financial institutions know we're a good bet. Washington is a safe bet. And it is due to the fiscal responsibility that the legislature has demonstrated. And when we've learned from our mistakes and have adjusted, we're nimble enough to be able to do that. And I think that because of the different philosophical approaches that the two parties have here, I can understand from the Republicans' perspective that claim. It is not one that I subscribe to because I'm familiar with what we've done about socking money away uh, and having it available to deal with those difficult times. I am extremely comfortable with our financial position in Washington state, and that's been verified and validated by the people whose business it is to mind other people's financial status and demonstrate to the public what, if any, risk there is in purchasing our bonds or in giving us the credit rating they have. It's been independently validated by a third party whose job it is to do that. Detractors can say what they will, and I think that it is the job of the loyal opposition to point out what they would do differently or what could be done better. I am just fine with where we are. I think we landed on a good spending plan, and I think we have the reserves and resources going into the future to continue doing that. And I think we've just recorded a pretty good conversation here for Capital Ideas. I do want to express my appreciation to you, Representative Tim Ormsby, and to you, Shannon Wechter, Legislative Assistant to Representative Tim Ormsby. Thank you so much for being on Capital Ideas, the two of you. Thank you uh, so much for having us, Dan. I know this is something we look forward to. And just one small correction, when we're talking about Shannon and her title, her official title is Legislative Assistant extraordinaire. I'm not sure that that's what it says in her personnel file, but that is absolutely how I feel about it and how everyone that deals with our office would agree. Shannon, thank you so much. You're extraordinary. Thank you so much, Dan. That was fun. I know that was a long one, but if you stuck around to the end, I suspect you're glad you did. If you're a Capital Ideas subscriber, thank you. If you haven't hit that button yet, you can do so on all the usual platforms or at housedemocrats.wa.gov. It's free and you'll never miss another episode of Capital Ideas. This is your state government. What goes on here matters a lot. The more you know about how it works, and that's the goal of Capital Ideas, the better it can work for you and the people and issues you care about. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thank you for being here.